0: Well I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll be looking at Joshua chapter 2. And so Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying go view the land especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho behold Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, "Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land." But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And, and she said, "True, the men came to me, but they did not know, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed, at dark, the men went out. But I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof, and she had hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone. Before the men lay down, she went And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through a window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, and the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way the men said to her we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours for that you have made us to swear behold when we come into the land you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down and you shall gather into your house and your fa- your father and your mother your brothers and all your father's household then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head and he shall be guilt we shall be guiltless But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and they passed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. And also, the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we, we ask now that you would use this word this morning, to speak directly to our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you would convince us of your grace, that we would uh, know it, believe it, rest in it, and trust in it all the days of our life. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's not every day that a position of privilege, power, and prestige is walked away from. Yet, that's exactly what happened on December of 1936 in an announcement that would go on to shock the watching world. At the time, the British Empire was at its peak. It was at its height. It it had territories in every single continent with the exception of Antarctica. Economically, it was a powerhouse. It had invaluable resources under its control. As far as military might, it was formidable and technologically advanced. Its U.S. Navy was unrivaled in every way. And so by the time of 1936, the British Empire was at its utter peak. And Edward VIII was positioned to be the king. But in a moment that absolutely stunned the world, Edward announced over a radio broadcast his decision to voluntarily abdicate the throne, to walk away, to step away from this position of privilege, power, and prestige. And he did so for an equally shocking reason. He did it not because of his health, not because of his age, not because of public opinion, but he did it for love of his mistress, a twice-divorced American woman of all that, and he walked away from it all. Her name was Wallace Simpson, and this unexpected decision would go on to rock the royal family. Uh, it would split public opinion, and ultimately years and years of the of an English monarchy would be uh, sh- uh, shaken to its core well it 's not just the English monarchy that has Uh, the monopoly, so to speak, on unexpected twists and turns in the story. The story of Scripture, the story of redemption is full of shocking twists as well. And in our passage this morning, we find one of the most shocking of twists. I would say perhaps the more shocking than any abdication of any throne Ever. And we see that in this passage. Our passage before us is, is a story of the last becoming the first, of someone losing their life in order to gain it. A story of really of, of God's grace that is limitless and defies human expectations. And it all begins in a very unexpected way. Look here, just so give us the big picture. So last week, we were in chapter 3 of Joshua. Israel had crossed over into into, um, the land of Canaan. Well, this week, we're going to go back in time a little bit. We're going to go back to chapter 2, but we're going to do so in order to go forward where we'll end in chapter 6 this morning. So at this particular stage, Israel is to the east of the Jordan River. They have yet their position and poised to cross over into the land of Canaan. They have yet to do so. Uh, and we're, and uh, Joshua, who is the military leader, the, the mediator of the covenant at this point in Israel's history, he decides that he's going to send over two spies into the land of Canaan. They're going to scout out the city of Jericho, which just so happens to be the very first city in the conquest of Israel. And he does so uh, very wisely, right? As a military leader with lots of experience, he knows that it's prudent, that it's wise to go in and come up with a strategy and to scout out the area. And so he, he does so, I, I would say, uh, with great faith. Right? He goes in with uh, very strong and courageous, and they, they go into the land, even risking their own lives to kind of entrusting God's promise that God is with them and that he is going to go before them and all things, and uh, they end up even using a lot of just strategic moves, and they actually, even the place they stay is actually very strategic itself. They end up staying in a house of a prostitute, we're told in verse 1, uh, which in a Lot of sense, it makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons. If you were going to hide and fly under the radar and you were going to gather intel, where would you stay? Well, a place that values secrecy and discretion makes a lot of sense. A place where you would hear a lot of the town gossip uh, would it be. And so that's exactly what they did. And so here they are, fresh off the promises of God in chapter one his command to go in and to take the land because he's going to give it and they are faithfully following that command by doing so. And then you get to verse two. And verse two is shocking. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. In so many ways, it's unexpected. What happens is we're told in in verse two is that they get there and the king immediately finds out. He hears of their presence, right? Here they are on this covert, secret, top secret mission, and they come in, and the first thing we find out is that their cover's blown. The whole thing, the conquest, is, it seems to be in jeopardy before it even takes off. Israel hasn't even crossed over into the land yet. Just the spies have gone over. And so there's this shocking moment of, and where you're wondering, okay, Lord, what are you doing? What's going to happen here? And then to make matters worse, they're at the mercy of a pagan Canaanite enemy prostitute by the name of Rahab. And 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 we're wondering if she's going to turn on them the whole time. And she has every reason, by the way, to turn them in. She has every reason to hand them over to the king and to give them over. She has everything to lose by not doing so, and she has everything to gain probably by, doing, by, by giving them over. And yet, what's even more shocking about this moment, she doesn't. Instead, she lies. She tells them that they snuck out the gate and they went that way and the kings believe her and they follow suit and all along the two spies are up on the roof hiding and they're wondering and hoping that she doesn't change her mind and hope that she's not going to do this thing and and then we get this this ominous note at the end of verse 7 at the end of verse 7 we're told that the king's men they go out in pursuit of the two spies And then we're told that the gates close behind them. It shuts. Remember, this is a walled, fortified city, okay? Impregnable, right? You don't get in and out without going through the gate, and the gates are closed, right? You hear the shutting, the locking, like of a prison cell, and there's no way out. You're done, right? The tension, the suspense is is building. It's there, and so here we are. We have two of God's people, two spies, in enemy territory, and they are here trapped in a city that is, that is walled. There's one way in and one way out, and they're at the mercy of a pagan prostitute. Not a great situation. Detention and suspense was, we're left with to, to wrestle with, honestly, until verse 15 Right? The, t- the story doesn't get resolved until verse 15. If you look, it's actually interrupted by verses 8 through 14. And it's as if the, uh, the author has something important that he wants to, to say. And I think that he does. I think there's a reason why the, the author, the writer, makes us wait for this tension to be resolved. Because what, he is, what he's trying to say, say and show us is that what's happening in verses eight through 14 is actually more important than, what's go- than how this story resolves. And so we turn our attention now to verse eight. Look with me there. Verse eight, it says this. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. Well, in verse 8, we find out that apparently news has been spreading. There's a lot of chatter out there, okay? There people are talking. There's things that are being said about the Israelites and their God. And uh, we find out what those things are in verse 10. Look there. Verse 10, it says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the river, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So here, apparently, they've been, they've been hearing about the mighty works of God, particularly two events. They had heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. They heard about the time... When the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and the Lord heard their cries and he rescued them out of slavery and he brought them out of the land and as they're traveling they became stuck between a huge giant body of water and a sea of Egyptian soldiers and they were trapped But then the Lord miraculously intervened and he parted the Red Sea and the land became dry in between. And the Israelites crossed over into safety. And then as the Egyptians were in pursuit, they're swallowed up in the waters. They heard about this. They heard about also the the account of the two kings the Amorite king, so as Israel was continuing to journey through the wilderness to the promised land for the first time, they decided, you know, here they are a bunch of men, women, and children, very exposed, very vulnerable, traveling through open country. They decide to get permission to travel through the land of this king. The king doesn't give them permission. He instead responds with aggression. He sneaks up on them and tries to attack them. And we're told that the Lord divinely intervened and gave the king and his army into his hands. Not just once, but twice. Miraculous. Mighty works on display. Well, these people, these Canaanites, had heard about these things. And these things caused them their hearts to melt. Then in verse 11, it becomes clear that that's not all they heard. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us this. And by the way, you need to understand how shocking this is. What comes out of Rahab's mouth is utterly shocking. And I'm gonna tell you why. Look what she says. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Why is that shocking? Well, first off, it's shocking because notice the word she uses for, the, for, for God. It's, if you look in your bulletin or in your Bibles, you'll probably find that word uh, for Lord in all caps. The reason why it's in all caps is because the translators are trying to tell you that this is not just the generic word for God. This is the personal name for God. This is Yahweh. This is the name that Moses was given uh, by by the Lord when they were at the burning bush. And he said, who do I tell sent me to save you, right? This is his personal name. This is a name that represented his covenant faithfulness and love for his people. And here she is, a Canaanite pagan woman talking about this God in a very personal way. Well, secondly, it's shocking because of this. You have to remember, she is submerged in a pagan culture, a Canaanite culture that believes in polytheism, right? That there are many gods, right? There, there's gods among many. And so, uh, and, and often these, these gods are, are represented uh, some aspect of creation. So there's the sun god and the, the rain god and the fertility god and all of that. And you would go to these specific gods with the different needs that you had. But here she is making a very exclusive claim about God. By making this statement, she's saying that he's not just a God among many. This is the God. This is the God of the heavens and of the earth below. Right? She's using this literary device That's called a merism. And what it is is where you take two opposites and they represent everything in between. And so it's all-encompassing. It's showing that this is the God of all things. It's incredible. And then it's shocking for another reason. I, I would say that this is probably perhaps the least likely person you would expect to utter these words Yes, you would expect a a good Torah-believing Jew who memorizes the Scripture to say these words, but you wouldn't expect a Canaanite pagan prostitute these are words that almost come straight from Scripture. We're told in Deuteronomy 4, 39, this, almost identical words. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above, and on the earth below there is no other. That's an Israelite confession. Here we are. We have a pagan Canaanite prostitute with an Israelite confession on her lips. Incredible astonishing, shocking to say the least, but there's more. Look at verses 12 through 13. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and uh, make, give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and brother and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Amazingly, Rahab knew not only that this was an all-powerful, majestic, mighty God, but she somehow senses that he might be merciful to her. It's remarkable. It reminds me of the the account in C.S. Lewis where Susan, the really youngest girl, is talking to Mr. Beaver in the land of Narnia, and she finds out for the first time that Aslan, who's the, the, the god figure, the Christ-like figure in the story, that Aslan is not a man but actually a lion, and she says to Mr. Beaver, uh, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver ends up saying to him, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. There's this aspect in which she, Rahab, realizes that there's some quality about God that might look to her and be merciful and kind to her. She had heard about Yahweh's works, how he had set his love and affections on a small people, an insignificant, undeserving people, the Israelites, and how he set their affections on them and how he rescued them and redeemed them over and over and over again. And she thought to herself, just maybe, just maybe, the Lord might be merciful to me, a pagan Canaanite prostitute. Incredible. Well, this unexpected confession leads to a very unexpected conclusion. Finally, in verse 15, we get some tension or get some relief from that tension and suspense that we we felt and have been carrying for the last five verses and we're told in verse 15 this, then she, Rahab, let them down by a rope through the window. And notice this, it's like a, just almost like a, an off comment, a small p- parenthetical detail. Look what she says. For her house was built into the wall of the city so that she lived in the wall. Here we are, we have Rahab, and we have this tension that's been building and we get this glimmer of God's providence. Here we've been wondering like where's God? Where is he in this situation? How in the world are the Israelites going to get out of this situation? It seems hopeless. It seems daunting. And what we find out is that God has been overseeing these events, these events the entire time. It wasn't an accident that the spies were led to this Rahab's house that just happened to be built into a wall, that just happened to have a window, that just happened to be occupied by the only Canaanite in the entire city who had heard and believed and was willing to help. Not an accident. God uses an enemy pagan, pagan Canaanite prostitute to save his people. It's incredible. God's ways are certainly mysterious, but they are incredible as well. Before letting them out of the window, she tells them to go west, since the, she told the soldiers to go east in pursuit, and she tells them to wait there three days. And when the soldiers come, and they come back to the city, they can, after three days, they can go safely to their homeland. They, they follow that, and they, they do that to a T, and they come home safely, and they're able to encourage the Israelites with these wonderful stories of God's providence and deliverance. But before they leave, they make sure to spell out the terms and conditions of the agreement. We're told those terms in verses 17 through 20. Look at verse 17. We're told that that they are to, one, stay in the house. Don't leave the house, stay in the house. Two, that they are to tie a scarlet cord around the window in which they let her out, or let the spies out of, and that they are to remain there. And if they do that, if they don't leave, they will be spared. They will be safe. Their home would be a safe haven, so to speak, for them uh, in a lot of ways. Well, she does this immediately. She ties the scarlet cord or, around uh, the window, and, and this scarlet cord gets a lot of talk about in, in many commentaries. Many people wonder, like, okay, is this a reference to Jesus and his blood on the cross? And I would say indirectly yes, but I think there's something else that would come to mind before uh, come to mind for them, right? Something that would have came to mind, and that story would be the story of the Passover. The, the story of Israel and Egypt as they're in the land and God is bringing his judgment on the Egyptians and he tells the Israelites, y'all are familiar with the story, to, to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And if they do that, then everybody in the home will be safe. God's judgment would pass over them and they would be redeemed. Well, something similar is going on here with this scarlet cord. And it has a pedagogical function. It has a teaching function. It, it's trying to teach them something. And the thing that it's teaching them is this. If you look to and you trust in the provision of God, you will be safe. That's, that's the lesson. That's what he's trying to teach. And here we see it being offered, this provision being offered to a Canaan prost, Canaanite prostitute. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. The, in the New Testament, Rahab is actually mentioned um, several times. Uh, Rahab is mentioned once in Hebrews, in the, the hall of faith, as we call it, uh, for, uh, and her faith is commended. She's mentioned again in, in James. Uh, uh, she's mentioned as one of two. Abraham is one of those people mentioned, and she's the other. And, it's, and in that, James is highlighting the works that accompanied her faith. Uh, in that moment and uh, and so uh, here she is it's certainly true that she followed through and she demonstrated great faith but what ends up happening to Rahab what's the story what's the end of the story well we find out the end of the story in part in chapter six which is on the fifth panel of your handout let's turn there together now In that you'll see verses 22 through 25. We're going to be fast forwarding a little bit in context here. The Israelites at this point in in the story have crossed over into the land of Canaan. Sorry, the other way. Into the land of Canaan. And uh, they have uh, circled the city of, of Jericho. They've surrounded it. They've marched around it for seven days. They've blown the trumpets and the walls were told laid flat. They came crumbling down. And they were able to go into the city and conquer it. Well, we're given these words right in the middle of that. And I'm actually only going to read verse 25 because that gets us straight to the point. But Rahab, the prostitute, in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she, and this is, this is incredible, and she has lived in Israel to this day Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You see, as a result of her faith, she is included as a full covenant member into the Israelite family. She gets all of the benefits and all the privileges that come with being in that family. And it's absolutely incredible. Well, so a few weeks ago, my wife just happened to be in the office, my wife Amy, and uh, David was uh, in the process of doing some genealogy work. Uh, I, think he, I think he didn't have a sermon that, that week, so he is doing a little deep dive for his own family as he, as he does, and my wife just kind of uh, randomly threw out the, the fact that uh, uh, her, her mom, my mother-in-law, Joe Cooper, had uh, done a lot of work in this and had discovered that there are a, a number of, of covenanters that were in, uh, in their family line. And so this immediately piqued up, uh, peaked um, David's interest. And so he began this deep dive looking into it. And as he looked into it, he found one connection after another connection after another connection. And eventually, he was able to track down the line to one particular name, a name that was completely unexpected, a name that many of you would be very familiar with, a name that came in, the words of this, it was Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, for those of you who don't know, is basically like the Prince of Puritans. He was a Scottish covenanter, uh, co- Scottish pres- Presbyterian. He was uh, instrumental in the forming of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so, here, apparently, someone in the direct line of my mother in law's family was the brother of Samuel Rutherford. Uh, and he happened to be a pastor as well, I believe. And um, I, I'm sure if I would do some research on my own, uh, in my own family, it would probably be like, convicts and things like that in there. But uh, my family, my wife's family, of course, they discover Samuel Rutherford. And Samuel Rutherford, to me, is is wonderful uh, because I, I actually was given a little book from one of my closest friends uh, called The Loveliness of Christ. It's a little small red book, and in it is just Jewel after jewel of just Christ-centered uh, words uh, that are just so awe-inspiring and worshipful. Um, I fell in love with him. So when I found out that Samuel Rutherford was in the family line, I was ecstatic, right? You, you never know who's gonna turn up in your family line. Well, the same is true from here. And if you, in Matthew's genealogy in chapter one, we find out perhaps one of the most shocking things ever. A shocking person that you could find uh, in a genealogy, perhaps the most shocking of all. In that genealogy, we're told that Rahab is in the family line of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Rahab, the, the one in our passage, Rahab, the prostitute, she is in the family line of Jesus. Remarkable. Apparently, Rahab wasn't only just invited as a covenant member, but she married uh, a fellow, uh, I- or she married an Israelite, and she gave birth to a son by the name of Boaz. I don't know if you've heard that name. Uh, Boaz and Ruth. Uh, and, and Boaz fathered, um, fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David, King David. And so the line goes. It's incredible we hear this, this story In other words, so just let this sink in. God saw fit to include someone like Rahab, a pagan prostitute, into the genealogical line of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer, in his commentary on Joshua, asked the question of whether, you know, this is scandalous, right? He asked whether it's appropriate. Is it, is it appropriate? Is it, is it fitting that God would save someone like Rahab of all people? It doesn't really kind of make sense to our human conventions. And he ends up answering the question, as I think we should all answer it, as it is most fitting indeed that God would include someone like Rahab. Because after all, we are Rahab. We are Gentiles, we are included into the covenant promises of grace when we had no business being there. In one way or another, we have committed spiritual adultery, spiritual idolatry. We have fallen short in so many ways, and yet our God looks to us and He says, Welcome. Welcome into my family. This is incredible. The story of Rahab, in the story of Rahab, we get a picture of just the kind of people that the Lord likes to keep in his company. We get a picture of just how far God's grace can go to redeem his people. And that is great news for you and me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful message, this message of your lavish, limitless grace poured out on undeserving people like us. Lord, we are Rahab. We are all in need, in desperate need of your grace, in desperate need of your provision for us. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided that in Christ Jesus. May we look to that. May we cling to that all the days of our life, we pray in Christ's name, amen.